Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for uh, our worship team and all the work that they put in and the effort they give. And Lord, uh, thank you for them leading us and preparing our hearts to hear your word. Lord, thank you for all the blessings that you give us, for your grace and your mercy, your steadfast love for your people. Lord, I thank you for the truth of your word, and I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, all of us would hear that word this morning and that you would confirm it in our hearts. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning who doesn't know you, I pray that you would call them to you during this time. Lord, help them to see your great love for them. And again, draw them to you, Lord, this morning. Lord, we pray all this in your great and holy name. Amen. All right. The children, young men and women are dismissed. Have a great class, and thanks for all the teachers for your assistance. Well, good morning. As Bill said, my name is Eric Tooker, and I'm one of the elders here at Hope. It's a privilege to be able to share a message this morning with the church family that I love and uh, visitors here this morning as well who I'm sure I'll come to love. Uh, Lord, we're, or everyone, we're glad that you're here in person or online and uh, I heard that a couple weeks ago when Ralph Nelson preached, he tried to set expectations by saying that he's no Bill Bornstein. And so I just need to tell you that I'm no Ralph Nelson. <laughs> so uh, we'll muddle through as best we can. Uh, somebody else asked me this morning, are you a walker or a stander? And I said, I am for sure a standard, a stander because I don't get very far from this right here, I, I'm just not good enough. This is not my day job. Uh, but I'm confident in the message that uh, I have for us this morning uh, because it's God's word. So uh, we're in a new sermon series called A Cloud of Witnesses based on Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews 11 has been called the faith chapter because it defines faith, and then gives examples of men and women who lived out their faith, showing us what living faith looks like and what it will produce in our lives. Hebrews 11 defines faith in verse 1 as, quote, the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, end quote. And last week, Pastor Bill noted that this kind of faith comes when you can see beyond your circumstances, trust in the promises of God, and look to the future glory of our home in heaven. Hebrews 11 contains examples of many great saints of old who did just that. And as Hebrews 11.13 notes, the amazing thing is that the faith of these saints endured even though the promises made to them in God, by God were never fulfilled during their lifetimes. 
So our sermon this morning is about one of those saints and his son, Abraham and Isaac. We'll primarily be looking at Genesis 22, in which God commanded Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. My sermon title, What's Love Got to Do With It?, is taken from that great American theologian, Tina Turner. (laughs) I chose that title because while the story of Abraham and Isaac is about faith and trust in God and the obedience that results from those things, the great love of God is the foundation for being able to build the faith that as Hebrew 11 tells us, each of us must have in order to please God. So the big idea this morning is just that. We are, lo- we are greatly loved by God, and that is the source of our faith, trust, and obedience in God. The story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the most well-known in all of Scripture It's also one of the most controversial, and many believers and non-believers alike have struggled with the command that God gave Abraham to sacrifice Isaac. But I think as we'll see in a few minutes, God's command to Abraham may be one of the greatest mercies that God ever gave him. I'm going to be extolling the virtues of Abraham a lot this morning But please remember, Abraham was far from perfect. He struggled with doubts and fears, just like we do. Twice, he told rulers over the lands where he was sojourning that his wife was his sister because she was beautiful, and he was afraid they would kill him to get her. And he and Sarah had Ishmael with Hagar because they were impatient with God in giving them a son. But the love of God acted as an anchor in Abraham's life that enabled him to master his circumstances rather than being mastered by his circumstances. He had such an intimate, trusting relationship with God that trials and testing only seemed to increase his love for God and God's love for him. I don't know about you, but I'd like to get in on some of that. So the question for us this morning is, what can we learn from Abraham's life that can help us live a masterful life too? And how can we live with the same kind of faith that Abraham did? If you haven't already, please turn to Genesis chapter 22 in your Bibles and just keep your place there because we'll be coming back there many times. But let me read Genesis 22, 1 through 12. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. 
I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went both of them together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. I want to go over three main points this morning that I hope will help us see how Abraham built a life of dynamic faith and trust in God. And then at the end, I'll address how God has shown his love for us. So the three main points are these, Abraham's testing, Abraham's faith, and Abraham's reward. Let's start with Abraham's testing. Abraham was consistently tested. Genesis 22.1 says, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. The phrase, after these things, refers to God's continual testing of Abraham. Ever since he was called, God tested him. And all of these trials, all of this testing, prepared Abraham for the ultimate test with Isaac. Over time, a, pat a pattern developed in Abraham's life. It's a trajectory, really, of faith that when he encountered a trial or circumstances that were unfavorable, he responded in faith. And then God was faithful to him through the trial. And as a result, Abraham's faith grew and matured, and that pattern repeated itself over and over. One of my favorite passages on living out our faith is in Luke 8. This is where the disciples uh, are going with Jesus in a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus is asleep in the back, and a storm comes up, and water's coming over the side of the boat's boat, and the disciples freak out, and they run to the back, and they wake Jesus up, and he gets up, and he calms the storm. And then he looks at his disciples and says, where is your faith? I heard a Tim Keller sermon on this, on this passage some time ago, and he said that what Jesus was really asking them was, why didn't you get your faith out and use it? You have faith. You're in circumstances that require faith. Why didn't you get your faith out and use it? I don't think he would have asked the same thing of Abraham during most of his trials because Abraham continually got his faith out 
and used it, as we're about to see. So here's a brief sampling of what Abraham went through so that hopefully as I go through these things, you can see the pattern in his life of faith in God and trust in him and obedience, the, the trajectory of his faith journey as he lived it out before God. The first is Abraham was consistently, sorry, I already did that. The first is he was called by God to go out from among his people. In Genesis 12.1, God tells Abraham to leave his father's house and go to a land that he would show him along the way. That meant leaving everything, his home, his family, his culture, everything familiar to him. He didn't know where he was going. He just went. The second thing was Abraham yielded to Lot. As you probably know, Abraham was traveling with his nephew Lot, and eventually there wasn't enough room for the servants and the herds. They weren't playing nice together, and so they had to split. And Abraham obviously had seniority over Lot, but he let Lot have his choice of the land that lay before them. And Lot looked around and picked out what he thought was the best land, and that's what he chose. It was the area around Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know what happened to those cities, you know Lot chose poorly. Abraham uh, defeated four kings. There were four kings that came from the east, and they besieged the cities around Sodom and Gomorrah and took everything, including Lot and his family. And Abraham gets together his servants and his fighting men, and he went after the kings and their combined armies with a significantly smaller fighting force. But he defeated the kings and he rescued Lot. Next, Abraham banishes Hagar and Ishmael. Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. And she and Abraham got tired of waiting for God to act. So she gave her servant, Hagar, to Abraham for a wife, and Abraham and Hagar had Ishmael. Then Sarah got jealous, and at Sarah's insistence and God's command, Abraham had to banish his son. Abraham didn't want to cast out his son. He had waited so long for one, but God was making the way for Isaac, and Abraham did what God said to do. And then lastly, Abraham waited for Isaac. God established his covenant with Abraham and promised him that he would become the father of many nations. That was when he was 75. He and Sarah had Isaac when he was 100. So what does all this testing of Abraham have to do with you and me? Well, it means this. If God tested Abraham, he'll test us. We'll be tested and tried just like Abraham. Now, many of the trials and tribulations that we go through are what I call self-inflicted wounds. But God will test us, every believer. Maybe not to the same extent as Abraham and hopefully not. But if we are going to be used by God, 
he will test us. And if we're to be used greatly, he'll likely test us greatly. Charles Spurgeon said this, we are precious in his sight. Therefore, as the goldsmith assays the metal, as the silversmith refines the silver again and again in a furnace of earth, so God tests, purifies, and tries us. He sets a high value upon us, and therefore he tests us. Well, is this arbitrary and capricious by God? No. He tests us out of love for us. Last week, Pastor Bill mentioned Hebrews 12, which says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. I like what the book of James says, and this is so important for the message this morning and really for describing Abraham's life. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. You can see this in Abraham's life. This is the anchor that I mentioned that enabled him to master his circumstances. We can build this into our lives. Spurgeon says that God, quote, educates our faith by testing us. I think he means that when we respond to trials in faith, our faith grows and matures. And this becomes a pattern in our lives the way it did for Abraham. God's school of testing is always in session. And Abraham is about to receive the hardest lesson of all, the ultimate test. Genesis 22.2, he said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. We hear this and we may ask why. Why this command? Why this test? Why does Isaac, the child of promise and the hope of blessing for generations to come, have to die and by his father's hand? And just as before, God gave no reason, just the command. But there was a reason. From the time that Abraham was called by God, his life showed evidence of great faith. But God is a jealous God and always wants to be the subject of our greatest affection. Abraham had desired a son for decades, and now he had Isaac, and perhaps his heart was becoming divided. Isaac was called the son of promise because he was the key ingredient for all the promises that God made to Abraham. So Abraham needed a son. Everything in his life depended on having a son. And now that he had him, maybe Isaac was becoming an idol to Abraham. Tim Keller said this in Counterfeit Gods, 
if God had not intervened, Abraham would have certainly come to love his son more than anything else in the world if he did not already do so. That would have been idolatry. Remember the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And I believe Isaac, not God, was becoming first in Abraham's heart and soul and mind. So maybe the most horrible of trials was actually a gift of mercy to Abraham because God would not have allowed Isaac to stay as an idol in Abraham's life. The test he went through showed this to Abraham and enabled him to put Isaac back in his rightful place in his heart. God asked Abraham to offer him up so that he could keep him. So this begs the question, what about our idols? Is there anything in your life that is a competitor or rival with God for the sovereignty of your heart? If so, just know that he will work to eliminate it. And the only way we can truly be rid of the idol is to replace it with something greater, to replace it with a greater love for God. There's a great old sermon by Thomas Chalmers titled The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. Chalmers says this of idols. We know of no other way by which to keep the love of the world out of our heart than to keep in our hearts the love of God. And no other way by which to keep our hearts in the love of God than building ourselves up on our most holy faith. I bought an old movie the other day. It's called The Bible in the Beginning. And George C. Scott is Abraham. He's one of my favorite actors. And there's this climactic scene when Abraham and Isaac are on the mountain and Isaac is on the wood and Abraham leans down to light the wood on fire that's going to consume the sacrifice once it's made. And his face is inches away from Isaac. And Isaac looks into his father's eyes and says, Father, is there nothing that he may not ask of thee? And immediately Abraham says, nothing. This is a good segue to talk about the faith of Abraham. Abraham's faith, his faith revealed Commentators have spilled oceans of ink trying to describe how this commandment would have negatively affected Abraham, how agonizing it would have been, how Abraham must have been angry with God or argued with God. He would be deprived of his only son, torn away by a violent death with Abraham as executioner. Was God now his adversary? By killing Isaac, would that be the elimination of any possibility of man's future blessing? I'll admit that those things may have been going through Abraham's mind. Maybe during his three-day journey to Mount Moriah, 
maybe when he was alone on the mountain with Isaac. But if he had those thoughts or feelings, he never acted on them. From everything that we see in Genesis 22, Abraham is steadfast, just like the verse in James promises. He was obedient. He didn't question or argue with God, and there was no hesitation. I love the fact that he had the vision late in the night or early in the morning. And then early in the morning, he saddled his donkey. He is on it. He's not arguing with God. He did what God told him to do as soon as he told him to do it. And this is why he's celebrated in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 says this, By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And then in verse 17, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, I would suggest that this is the portrait of a man with deep, mature faith in God. He knew God so intimately that he trusted him completely. Even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, Abraham believed that God would provide. The desire of Abraham's heart was that God's will be done, and he would do God's will, come what may. So let's consider Abraham's response to the test. Abraham's response showed his faith in God through his obedience in God, to God. They go together. Faith in God produces obedience in God. Genesis 22.3. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac, and he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young man, men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. I think these verses show four things that we can learn about Abraham's obedience and that we should seek to imitate in our life of faith. The first is quick obedience. Through all his trials, Abraham always showed a quick obedience to God. He didn't stop to consider whether he agreed with God, to formulate reasons why he couldn't do what God asked, or to argue with God. 
he obeyed. Second is preparation. Abraham prepared what was needed in order to obey God. He had many servants, but he didn't wait for the servants to prepare anything. He got the donkey. He chopped the wood. He made sure the fire and knife were there. He made sure everything he needed to be obedient to God was at hand. Next is perseverance. Abraham showed perseverance in his obedience to God. God's command included that three-day journey that I mentioned before in which God did have lots of time to consider the implications of what God was asking him to do, but he never wavered. And lastly and most importantly, all of this displayed Abraham's complete trust in God He was so confident that God would keep his promises that there was no hint of straying from what God wanted. Let's move on to Genesis 22.7. Continue the narrative. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. Isaac's question had to have been difficult for Abraham. You can sense that Isaac is starting to understand what's happening and who the lamb may really be. But Abraham's answer, again, shows his trust in God's faithfulness. He tells Isaac and his own heart, God will provide. And then moving on to Genesis 22, 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Last week, Pastor Bill said that faith is active in obedience, no matter the circumstances or the consequences. So here was the moment of truth for Abraham, and he shows his faith, and it's faith in action. His mindset was was the same mindset that Jesus teaches us in the Lord's Prayer Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As you hear all this, do you wonder what Abraham's secret was? What did he know that we need to know when we're tested? Well, here's my answer, my opinion. I think it's based on scripture. 
He believed that God could do and would do what was humanly impossible to keep his promises. Isaac was the son of promise, yet God told him, Abraham, to kill him. But Abraham knew that God doesn't contradict himself. So Abraham was confident God would make what is humanly impossible possible. He had done it before. Abraham was 100, and Sarah was 90, and barren, but they had Isaac. So Abraham believed it when he told his servants that he and Isaac would both return from the mountain. Maybe God would raise Isaac from the dead. Maybe there was another way. Maybe God would do what he ended up doing and provide a substitute sacrifice. No matter what, though, Jehovah Jireh, God would provide. This should remind us of the gift of salvation. We're dead in our trespasses and sin, and being reconciled with God is not humanly possible. But God makes what is humanly impossible, possible. He provides a substitute sacrifice for us through his son, Jesus. Let's move on to the next section, Abraham's reward. Because we read all this, and I I know I thought this, what does Abraham get out of all this? What does his great faith gain him? Well, in the passage that we read, After he's obedient and offers up his son, God reconfirms the covenant that he made with Abraham. And he tells him again that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in heaven and the sand on the seashore and that all people would be blessed through Abraham. That's pretty good. And that's really enough, but I I think there's some other blessings that he had as a result of his faith. Let me go through them now. First, Abraham was sure of his love for God. After Isaac was saved and God provided a lamb for the sacrifice, God made it clear that he knew Abraham loved him. But what did Abraham's faith reveal to Abraham? Abraham found out that beyond a shadow of a doubt, he loved God. What a blessing it was for him to have assurance that God loved him, but what a blessing to have the assurance that he loved God. He knew that he was a child of God, and he shared a mutual love with God. Next, Abraham was a friend of God. James 2.23 says this, and the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. Other scriptures talk about this too. In Isaiah 41.8, God is speaking to the nation of Israel, calling them descendants of Abraham, my friend. Literally, Isaiah 41.8 could be translated as Abraham who loved me. Abraham showed his love for God through his faith in and obedience to God 
no matter the circumstances, no matter the consequences. He was more than just an acquaintance of God. He was a friend of God. I don't know about you, but I hear that and I think how wonderful it would be to be called a friend of God. But we forget that Jesus called us to be exactly that. Look at John 15, 14 with me. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. Well, what do we do with the commands of Jesus on us? I say we trust him and we get our faith out and we use it and we obey him and so become friends of Jesus. And lastly, Abraham saw Christ's day. In John 8, 56, Jesus said to the Pharisees, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Jesus confirms what may seem obvious to us in the reading of the story of Abraham and Isaac because Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is a clear foreshadowing of what God would later do by offering up his own son to die for our sin. Only in that case, it wasn't just an offer. It was made good. God provided a substitute sacrifice for Isaac, and he did the same for us. So now let me move on to our last section, God's love for us. I hope it's been as fruitful for you as it was for me to study this, for us to look at Abraham's faith journey. But it's so important that we look at our own faith journey, not, those, not just those of the saints of old. It starts like it did with Abraham with the love of God for us. The book of Romans has a passage that connects Abraham's faith in God and our faith in Jesus and God's love for Abraham and God's love for us. It's in Romans 4. In hope, Abraham believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so your offspring shall be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was, quote, counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you're a Christian here this morning, I would tell you that there are many reasons to believe that God loves you. You've been chosen by God. 
The Holy Spirit has regenerated your dead heart and made it alive so that you can see the enormity of your sin and the holiness of God and realize your extreme need for a Savior. And God has provided that need by sending his Son to stand between you and the wrath of God and make an atonement for your sin so God remembers it no more. My friends, that is love. And if you're not a Christian this morning, don't you want that kind of love from the one who created you, the one who sent his son to die for your sin and to bring you into a right relationship with him? I'll tell you this, God wants that more than anything. Christ dying on the cross for our sins is certainly the most amazing example of God's love for us. Only a great love would cause him to die for sinners like you and me. But only slightly less amazing is that you and I were chosen in the first place. While the worship team comes back up, I want you to just think about this for a minute. You were chosen by God before the foundation of the world, if you're a believer here this morning. And so if you're struggling with unconfessed sin, if you're suffering physically or emotionally, if you're in a bad marriage, if you're in financial trouble, whatever your trial is, remember that you were loved enough by God to be chosen by him before the foundation of the world. And this is where I told my wife that I was going to come down and go to each person individually and tell you what I'm about to tell you. And she said, I I don't think he could do that. But I really wanted to. Because by choosing you, God is saying to each one of you individually and personally, I love you. And I want you to be with me forever. And I want that so much. That I'm willing to send my son, my only son, the son that I love, to die for you, to guarantee that you'll be with me forever. He loves you. And I hope you can never get over that. So what's our response to this amazing love? It has, it has to be faith. <clears throat> faith that is steadfast. Faith that expresses itself in action. Faith that lets us see beyond our present circumstances to trust in the promises of God and to have confident hope in the future glory of our eternal life with God in heaven. What's love got to do with it? Everything. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for the truth of your word. And again, I'll pray that you confirm the truth of your word in our hearts today. Lord, thank you for your amazing love for us. And that if we can get that down into our hearts, we can live lives of great faith 
in you, great trust in you, and great obedience to you. We pray all these things in your great and holy name. Amen.